Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome back or to the male-female hour. Each season for 19 years, I've had Allison Armstrong on. That's a long time, Allison. Now, Allison, does, are you continuing to do your seminars? I haven't done a live in-person seminar for almost two years. Yeah, well, that's because of the lockdowns. I never say COVID, by the way. I only say yeah. lockdowns. So, yeah. have you been doing it online? Yes. Why? All right. So, how do and, people? And how I do like people? Even better in many ways. So, okay, we have the link at DennisPrager dot com, but people just can remember it. Is it still Understand Men? They can do understandmen.com dot com or AllisonArmstrong dot com. Either one will get them. There. The problem with Allison Armstrong is people don't spell Allison right. Which, of course, we accounted for. They can spell it wrong and still get there as long as it's... Oh, very nice. A-L-I-S-O-N. A-L-L-I-S-O-N. All right. So you and I have begun this interesting discussion. We both agree that a good marriage, not even necessarily great, a good marriage is best for the vast majority of men and women. So where we differ is on my claim that even if you had a bad marriage, you did grow up. That's my claim. I'm not saying it was happy or good. Uh, I'm just saying that you grew up. And and so that's why I gave the uh, the example of my asking the woman, would she rather date a 45-year-old man who had never been married or who had been married and divorced? And and. Yeah. And you're saying, and, and you know, we, we're both right in a certain sense, and I'm not being, you know, I'm not mm-hmm. a diplomat, but uh, I, I hear you, and I, and I, and I know you hear me. Uh, so you're saying, mm-hmm. look, there might well be men, and you're right, there are men who for non-immaturity reasons uh, have not gotten married by 45, but would love meeting quote unquote the right woman or as you put it a right woman would in fact get mm. married so i would i would simply counter that uh i'm i'm as a man a bit dubious about guys who at 45 are telling me they just didn't meet the right person uh cuz first of all i agree with you there there can be a right person if there's only the right person what if she is in slovenia He's really screwed. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> she may not be in let not only not in his city, but in his country. <laughs> well, <laughs> so can I jump in on this? Yes, of course. I know. Okay, so a small thing and then the main thing. The small thing is, I would look further to find out who does he take care of. So a man has never been married, but is a devoted dog owner, like really takes care of his pets. 
extraordinary. Uh, I've gotten witness. Or has a company and his first priority is the well-being of his employees. That's hot. And that happens. Um, so I just, I just, I don't like to take anything just at the, like, make a decision based on one piece of information. I would actually encourage her to ask him for something and see, does he follow instructions? Does he honor what she needs, even if he doesn't understand what it is, which is what my topic about boundaries is. Um, and so I would just, I would just look further, but on the topic of what makes someone a right person, I spent a lot of time investigating this with men and we have identified 12 qualities that make someone a right person. And depending on a man's stage of development, depending on his, his values and what his priorities are in life, the weight of each of these 12 things can vary. And, and there are men who will forego some of them uh, just because the others are so important. Um, but one, one that would make sense to me that someone could have gone that long and not meet a right person is one of the things that makes a, right, a woman a right person is she doesn't emasculate him too much. Too much. And <laughs> yes, too much. You guys will put up with a certain amount of emasculation, uh-huh. and a lot. You'll put up with a lot more before the transformation. I I call going from a prince to a king. Um, after that, a lot less, <laughs> a lot, a lot less. And it's one of the reasons many marriages blow up at that point. And uh, yeah, so she she can't do that too much. And this is in conflict with that. As a man, your instincts tell you to find the strongest, most competent woman that you can attract and keep and marry her. Like that's just a survival imperative, right? The strongest, most competent woman. You want that kind of partner. Who's that kind of partner for you? Incredibly competent human being, right? And not, and doesn't have too much of the girl brain, right? <laughs> that would be complimented by it only seems like five years. It's so fresh and, and lovely to be together. So, and so the, the attraction to the strength that men have instinctively, unfortunately, and this is what I've been working on for the last 30 years, the D31, the transformation of the castration club. Because women misidentify being strong with disempowering men instead of that a woman's ability to empower Is that new or is that always been? It's been here since I started our workshops in 1995. I've been dealing with it all this time. So it's an interesting... I don't know the answer to my own question. I, I can give evidence for both. My sense is that uh, the uh, the emasculating notion really took hold in the 60s where the idea of uh, I want to please a man or I want to do anything X, Y, or Z even to attract a man was regarded as a weakened woman. Remember, a woman who needs a man is like a fish who needs a bicycle. That that, that was what. You know, I had that T-shirt, right? No, I didn't know. 
I seriously had and wore that T-shirt. A woman without a man is like a fish without a bicycle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is, this is my take on it. Emasculation has been around forever because part of it is triggered by fear and part of it's triggered by frustration. However, um, as it, it's an unintended consequence of opportunities expanding for women, which makes us both have the possibility of real partnerships because it reduces dependency, but it had the consequence of we're less afraid to emasculate. We're less afraid to alienate a man because of our ability to provide for ourselves given given the change in society. All right, so I want to continue on that because it's, it's, I have to admit it's somewhat of a depressing topic. one <laughs> prager 776 if you'd like to join the discussion. Male-female hour with Allison Armstrong. I'm Dennis Prager. The Dennis Prager Show. Folks, you've noted in your gut that something just wasn't right about the 2020 election, and now you will have something pretty close to proof in Dinesh D'Souza's explosive new documentary, 2,000 Mules. You'll see jaw-dropping evidence of exactly how the Democrats cheated during the election. Now, I don't know if it made the difference. It might well have. You can't believe it was a fully honest election after you see this film. Drawing on meticulous research from election integrity group True the Vote, 2000 Mules uses both cell phone geo-tracking data and video evidence to uncover a massive network of illegal ballot trafficking in all five key swing states. Thousands across the country attended the nationwide theatrical release. Now you can watch from the comfort of your own home. Watch on any device with a web browser. See the movie that President Donald Trump calls a real blockbuster. Go to SalemNow.com to watch today. That's SalemNow.com, sponsored by Salem Media Group. Well, Allison is now visible, you lucky folks. You can see us both right now. And I get to see you. Thank you. That's very sweet. I'm just commented, missing the hug. I come. I'm sorry. I'm just missing the hug. Yeah. The, the post-COVID hug. Well, all uh, the hugs. You give such great hugs. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to put that on my resume. <laughs> Gives great hugs. I, I really would like to put that actually. So, uh, Alison Armstrong, who's been conducting seminars largely for women, but now women and men, and has tremendously important things to say in explaining uh, women to themselves and women to men, and explaining men to themselves and men to women. So, we got into a discussion here, uh, and it, it is about the about men and women, about needing each other. Now, when you wore the T-shirt, this you may have told me this in the past, but I didn't recall. When you wore the T-shirt, a woman without a man is like a fish without a bicycle. Did you mean it? Oh, yes, absolutely. Would you wear I'm, it? Would you I'm, wear it today? Oh, no, not at all. Right. So your transformation is part of what has enabled you to help so many women understand themselves. Is that fair? Yeah. And the fact that I came from, I mean, I came all the way. I came from not just not, you know, being determined to not need men, 
I was, I, I hated men. Hmm. Why? I was so, Why? Did you, um, did you hate well, your father? Uh, no, but I had disdain for him. Definitely. Okay. So I think that that's, would you say that that's relevant? Um, yeah, it all, it all adds up. Our, if you take our, the instincts that have us, um, naturally be afraid of men and adversarial and you, and then you add the experience of one's men in one's life. I had my dad and I had a, a stepdad by that time um, and the perception and mine was very much skewed by my mother's relationship with my dad, which was completely adversarial. And, and so then you add that and then you add all of culture. And I mean, I was so normal. Right? I was such a normal woman, you know, born in 1960 with Okay, as I matured, the message was clear. Um, I had to have a man. For my own, to be valued, I had to have a man. There's something wrong with you if you don't have a man. But I needed to not need him. So have one, but don't need one. And and I practiced that very well. <laughs> um, and, and it had a lot to do with the demise of my marriage. I got married when I was 23. And, um, and so, and not knowing, like so many women think, if you know I don't need you, I'll be more attractive to you. Women don't know how much net men need to be needed. That that's one of the things that a man is looking for in a right person is, do you need what I have to give? That's so, correct. That is absolutely, absolutely correct. Right? Do, do you need what I have to give? Therefore, will you value what I not only have to give, but maybe need to give, right? As human beings, we have things we need to give that if they're not received, the the real fulfillment of a relationship won't ever happen. It's not just getting that has it be fulfilling, right? It's that someone lets you give what you want to give most and, and thinks it's really amazing. Um, so a lot of... In the beginning, when we started, it was called Celebrating Men, Satisfying Women in 1995, right? And, um, and even when we met in 2004. Um, and we had that title, like, just to, to protect the workshop from what we called angry and vengeful. Because <laughs> that's where women were at that time, angry and vengeful. And we could only handle so many at a time. It was limited to 16 people, <laughs> 16 women. So we could navigate and, and unwind for them. How do we get in that place and could transform literally into seeing and hearing men maybe for the first time in our lives. And we watched it shift, you know, from women going from there to angry and strategic. And then women are much less angry now. They're, but they're frustrated and they're hurt. Okay, and I want to develop that in a moment. Uh, I'm with Allison Armstrong, and this is really important. one 8 776 Got some great calls, I got to say. This provocative subject, the male-female <laughs> hour. The laughter you heard is coming to you from rural Colorado. In the midst of aspen trees, 
We had a, <laughs> a little talk about that because I admired. You could see the paintings behind Allison. And she, according I, to Sean, you have a pillow on the couch that matches the paintings. Is he telling the truth or is he wasting my time? He's telling the truth. My, the truth. <laughs> you, uh, all right. No, no, no. I, 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 I gave a 50-50 chance that he was telling the truth. So we, yeah. Allison and I often have this, which I love. I mean, it's really, I so trust your insights that it doesn't matter to me whether we agree. It truly doesn't matter, but it's illuminating. We're talking about, in part, the the emasculating men issue. So you I'll give an example of something I learned just in the last 10 minutes from Allison. See, it's too bad that the great lines that a guest such as Allison will offer aren't then etched in people's minds because we naturally listen to what a person has to say after the great line and then forget it. But you explained it in part as there is some innate fear of men because we are more physically strong, overpowering the, the nature in some ways of our sexual drive. And so emasculating the man might make her feel safer. Is that correct? That I, I want to, I, I like repeating what I think I heard. Absolutely. Um, I call it a testosterometer. <laughs> it might be a funny name, but we, we, we can smell your power. We can see it, we can smell it, we can feel it, and we react to it. And when it seems like, and this is very sad, when you're the most powerful, which by the way is when you're happy, we're the most likely to do something to diminish you so that you're at a safe level. Um, oh, when that's I real, that, that No, out, that, that's, that's really something. It's almost it's almost like a flaw in the in the uh, in the ingredients. Yeah, well, almost, and it's because men and women literally have opposing instincts. So how we a woman goes about getting what she needs is the opposite of how a man needs her to go about getting what she needs. And so the antagonism between us is naturally going to keep increasing, just as the way a man goes about getting what he needs is the opposite of what a woman needs. And including the words that we use, the attitude we have, and our timing. Um, we have Men and women have very different needs timing-wise. And so it's ah, the demise of our romantic relationships is virtually inevitable um, because of the way that a romantic relationship and the dependency upon each other exacerbates how much we need from each other. And then so all the unworkability just blows up. And it's not personal. But as you know, Dennis, we live in a culture that takes everything personal, that he must not give me what I need because there's something wrong with him or something wrong with me. And we'll find a name for the wrongness 
you know, it's our attachment styles or <laughs> all this other kind of stuff. Um, but if we, I mean, all my, most of my work is just about awareness. If we can be aware of when we're having an instinctual response, like when a woman doesn't feel safe, she'll try to connect with her man. She'll try to connect with him. So what does she do to try to connect with him? And this ha has happened a lot since lockdown. How she'll try to connect with him is she'll go to wherever he is and without even thinking about it, she'll interrupt what he's doing <laughs> in order to get attention, like eye contact, a, you know, a hug, a snuggle, a touch, something that tells me, you know, I'm here. And if a tiger comes to get me, you'll save me. And not knowing that as a man, he's the most secure and it's going to be his best self when he's being productive. That productivity is part of the rhythm of being a man. And his anticipation of productivity is one of the things that will have him be settled. A history of productivity will have him be settled. If he's had a history but he can't see a future of productivity, he's going to be unsettled. But what do we do? We want to feel connected so we can feel safe and settled. So we'll interrupt his productivity <laughs> in order to get connected his reaction to that internet interruption, which we just disrupted his peace. We don't know we did. He was in a sense of peace, focus in his groove. And we came and like cut him off in traffic and we're expecting a warm welcome. And men don't give warm welcomes when you do that to them. They're like, what? Right? Or they're so focused they don't even hear it. It's just, uh, but, so wah, there's wah, this, wah, wah, wah. if what you say is true, and it sounds sounds like it is, then there's a certain inherent problem in, in male-female relations because what most attracts, I think, most women is a productive man. Yes. Yes. Yes, it means you're strong. Yeah, right. It means protect me and you can provide for me mm -hmm. so we want really productive men and we're clueless how to support you and and so i mean you said this in the beginning we'd end up talking about both it's why i wanted to talk about boundaries and can we honor a boundary we don't understand that's honor if we only respect a boundary we understand and you know me i've developed three decades to understanding but if we're not willing to just honor something you need because you said so, then it's not really honor. So can a closed door mean don't interrupt me? <laughs> like all I need to do is close my door and then all right. and then that's we continue. Got another segment, Allison Armstrong. We have the contact info at DennisPrager.com. The Dennis Prager Show. And talk of all the things we I never dreamed that I would have to face the prospect of not living in the United States of America, at least not the one I've known all my life. I've never wished to live anywhere else. This is my home, and I was privileged to be born here. But today I woke up, and as I had my morning coffee, I realized that everything is about to change. No matter how I vote, no matter what, I say something evil has invaded our nation, 
and our lives are never going to be the same. I've been confused by the hostility of family and friends. I look at people I've known all my life, so hate-filled that they agree with opinions they would never express as their own. I think I may have, well, entered the twilight zone. We become a nation that has lost its collective mind. You can't justify this insanity. If a guy pretends to be a woman, you're required to pretend with him. Somehow, it's un-American for the census to count how many Americans are in America. Russians influencing our elections are bad, but illegals voting in our elections are good. It was cool for Joe Biden to blackmail the president of Ukraine, but it's an impeachable offense if Donald Trump inquires about it. 20 is too young to drink a beer, but 18 is old enough to vote. People who have never owned slaves should pay slavery reparations to people who have never been slaves. People who have never been to college should pay the debts of college students who took out huge loans for their degrees. Immigrants with tuberculosis and polio are welcome, but you better be able to prove your dog is vaccinated. Irish doctors and German engineers who want to immigrate to the U.S. must go through a rigorous vetting process, but any illiterate gangbangers who jump the southern fence are welcome. Five billion dollars for border security is too expensive, but 1.5 trillion for free health care is not. If you cheat to get into college, you go to prison, but if you cheat to get into the country, you go to college for free. People who say there is no such thing as gender are demanding a female president. We see other countries going socialist and collapsing, but it seems like a great plan to us. Some people are held responsible for things that happened before they were born, and other people are not held responsible for what they're doing right now. Criminals are caught and released to hurt more people, but stopping them is bad because it's a violation of their rights. And pointing out all this hypocrisy somehow makes us racist. Nothing makes sense anymore. No values, no morals, and no civility. People are dying of a Chinese virus, but it's racist to refer to it as Chinese even though it began in China. We're clearly living in an upside-down world where right is wrong and wrong is right, where moral is immoral and immoral is moral, where good is evil and evil is good, where killing murderers is wrong but killing unborn babies is a-okay. Wake up, America. The great unsinkable ship, Titanic America, has hit an iceberg, is taking on water, and is sinking fast. Speak up. The impact of European conquerors on Africa, for good and evil, was relatively brief as history is measured, about three generations, as compared to the centuries in which the Romans ruled Britain, or Imperial China ruled parts of Southeast Asia, or the Moors ruled Spain. Just as the 1880s saw the beginning of the European scramble for Africa, so the 1950s saw the beginning of their massive withdrawal. This withdrawal began in the northern tier of Muslim states in the 1950s, when Libya, Morocco, and Tunisia became independent, then spread rapidly southward over the next two decades, as Nigeria, Tanzania, Uganda, the Congo, Kenya, and other black nations achieved their independence. Much as the withdrawal of Roman rule from Britain led to widespread retrogressions, so in many parts of Africa the departure of the European rulers was followed by technological breakdowns, failing economies, and political chaos. At the heart of the history of modern Africa, and of much of the Third World, has been an enormous disparity in wealth, technology, and resulting power between the imperial nations of Europe and the peoples of the colonized regions. 
The magnitude of this disparity enabled various European nations to overcome even desperate struggles of Africans to remain independent by exerting a relatively minor portion of their total resources, acquiring vast areas of Africa that were, in most cases, of minor economic significance in the Europeans' overall scheme of things. As a scholarly study of wars over the past three centuries has noted, the casualties and costs of one year of a colonial war were often less than those of one month of a European war. Africa was, of course, of great importance to Africans, and sometimes to particular European colonial officials, missionaries, and business interests involved there. But to Europeans in Europe it was simply another part of their world empire, and to government officials, especially in Britain, a major concern was that it not become a nuisance or a drain on the treasury. The British policy of indirect rule through local native authorities and indigenous institutions, modified to suit colonial purposes, was one result of the desire to minimize expenditure for a given amount of control. In most cases, with such exceptions as the White Highlands of Kenya or the White Settler Societies in Rhodesia and South Africa, there was no thought of establishing a transplanted European society in African countries, as in North America or Australia. But, while indirect rule was a mere expedient to Europeans, it profoundly affected the institutions, society, and futures of the colonized peoples. Often traditional native authorities with limited powers, and with traditional checks against those powers, became little autocrats when backed by the seemingly invincible force of the imperialist nation. Whites on the scene could be even bigger autocrats. Moreover, low-budget imperialism required the nipping in the bud of ideas, individuals, and movements, which might, if unchecked, later necessitate the costly use of troops and war material to maintain control. Few of these African nations had to wage the kind of desperate warfare for independence waged by George Washington or Simon Bolivar to achieve independence in the Western Hemisphere. When low-cost suppression failed in Africa, imprisoned African leaders were, in more than one country, simply released from custody and installed at the head of independent states by imperialist governments which, in most cases, did not find the matter worth major warfare. In those exceptional cases where independence came only after bitter, bloody, and protracted struggles, in Kenya, Algeria, or Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, for example, the key resistance to independence came from European settler communities in Africa, rather than from economic interests within the imperial nations themselves. This is part of a larger pattern of especially bitter relations between indigenous peoples and foreign settlers who refuse to be dislodged from what is also the land of their birth, or to accept rule by the conquered indigenes, with whom they share a history of mutual distrust and hostility. Ulster County in Ireland and Israel's West Bank are other examples, showing that neither large economic interests nor color differences are essential to this phenomenon. Although Africans have had patterns common to other conquered peoples, they have also been distinctive in some ways. Unlike either the American colonies or Britain under the Roman Empire, African countries were in most cases neither replicas of the imperial society nor truly integrated into its legal system or social traditions. Though many newly independent African nations imitated the outward forms of Western democratic societies, 
the relatively brief period of Western rule could hardly have replicated the centuries of tradition which made democratic institutions viable in Europe and in European offshoot societies overseas. Few of these democratic institutions survived for long after independence in Africa. The economic achievements of Europe were likewise not readily transferable to Africa, partly because of the severe geographical and climatic handicaps which long retarded economic, cultural, and political development in many parts of the continent. Moreover, the relatively brief history of Africa's exposure to European culture made widespread economic replication of European economic progress no more likely than replication of European democracy. Nevertheless, to some extent, European culture did have an effect on Africans. This limited transfer of culture took place in many ways, ranging from unconscious influence to formal study. However, despite an obvious desire in many newly independent African nations to imitate the West, by building industrial manufacturing plants, for example, little of the science, technology, or organizational management skills of the Western world were transferred to Africans. Although many Africans destined to become leaders of their countries spent years, and in some cases decades, living and studying in Europe or the United States, what they brought back from the West were not the practical or scientific knowledge and skills behind the wealth and power of the West, but rather the social theories and moral speculations of European and American intellectuals. Much of the painful history of the first quarter of a century of African independence was a history of African leaders, without the practical knowledge or experience of either Africa or the West, attempting sweeping social experiments on their own people, based on the untested theories of Western intellectuals. The results were often catastrophic. The entire period of a quarter of a century, beginning in 1965, averaged negative growth in output per capita in Uganda, Tanzania, Chad, Zambia, Ghana, Senegal, Madagascar, Zaire, Niger, Benin, and the Central African Republic. This meant that many Africans were poorer after a generation of independence than they had been under imperialist rule. After the soaring rhetoric and optimistic expectations at the beginning of independence were followed by bitter disappointments and painful retrogressions that reached into virtually every aspect of African life, the immediate political response was not so much a re-evaluation of the assumptions and policies which had led to such disastrous results, but instead a widespread blaming of the departed imperialists, or racial minorities such as the Indians, or even the United States, which has had relatively little role in African history, for good or ill. African governments by the dozens were toppled by military coups in the post-independence era. The swift disappearance of newly attained democracy, as brutal dictatorships took over, led to the cynical phrase, one man, one vote, one time. The elaborately fragmented peoples of Africa turned upon one another, sometimes with massive bloodbaths. Approximately 30,000 Igbos were slaughtered by Muslim mobs in Nigeria, 200,000 Hutus were slaughtered by the Tutsis in Burundi, and Idi Amin's regime slaughtered 300,000 people in Uganda. A continent once virtually self-sufficient in food, Africa became a massive importer of food as its own production faltered and in some places declined absolutely in the face of rising population. 
It was not uncommon for national output as a whole to decline absolutely for years in various African nations. In Equatorial Guinea, for example, the growth rate was negative for the decades of the 1970s and 1980s, averaging nearly minus 4% per annum for the 1980s and minus 9% for the 1970s. In Burundi, the annual growth rate of national output was minus 6% in 1994 and minus 18% in 1995, while in Rwanda it ranged from minus 3.2% in 1992 to minus 50% in 1994. After economic debacles, social tragedies, political repressions, and often brutality and bloodshed, some of these countries and their leaders began to change course in the 1980s, freeing up their economies from statist controls and thus tapping the initiative and energies of their own people, leading to economic upturns in economically devastated countries like Nigeria and Ghana. By 1997, perhaps a dozen African countries were growing at 5% per year or better. These upturns suggest that a belated appreciation of pragmatism was beginning to replace the initial fascination with grandiose visions and soaring rhetoric that marked the beginning of the era of independence in Africa. Nevertheless, even in the last decade of the twentieth century, economic growth in Africa as a whole lagged behind that of many other countries in percentage terms, as well as absolutely. However, Africa was not unique in this. The degree of freedom has been found to be correlated with the rate of economic growth for nations in general. For most of Africa, freedom for the people remained an aspiration three decades after national independence was achieved. What African nations now had, however, that they did not have at the time of independence, was first-hand experience of what kinds of policies produced what kinds of results. Much of this experience was bitter but an enlightening and potentially valuable heritage as well. As a study of this era concluded, thirty years of experience should not be dismissed lightly.